Hello, Adam Greenfield here, host of the Great Communicators podcast series. And what you're about to hear is the full, unedited interview with one of the guests we spoke with. If you haven't listened to the fully produced episode yet, I definitely encourage you to do so before listening to this one. They're shorter in length and much more refined. You can find them all at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. The idea behind these longer, unedited conversations is to give you an opportunity to hear the entire talk, orts and all. This is not only a fun way to hear the full flow of the conversation, but it also emphasizes the importance of the points made in the shorter, produced episodes, which, again, can be found at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the conversation. We're kind of forming these ideas around how do it's not technically how do you communicate it's more like what are the things you need to be thinking about? yeah of course and some of the places we've identified um areas where students should be thinking is connecting to an audience so one of the questions that tony had yep. formulated that would be great from you was um could you explain the same technique that you've worked on in two different ways one for like a student or a lay audience and the other one for more of a technical audience and just kind of, um, he said maybe HMMs if you wanted to. I, I, I don't know that HMMs would, would connect. Yeah. It could be anything. Yeah. Uh, you can choose. What was the other word you were saying? I'm the lay audience, by the way. So. That's great. That's great. <laughs> um, it, or PCR, uh, he said. But the, the, the big thing is that I kind of want to hear what you would think about how you would explain it differently, depending on who you're talking to. So. I don't think it's a question of explaining it differently depending on who you're talking to. I think mm-hmm. it's a question of in every single case, conversation with a person, uh, a freshman course, uh, meeting with the president of the United States, you're trying to understand who the listener is and what they're bringing to the conversation. Far too many people simply give some canned description and canned talk. When you're having a conversation, you're looking at the person, you're forming a mental model of what's in their head, what they're bringing to the conversation, what terms they're comfortable with, and then you're getting continuous feedback about it. They're nodding, they're paying attention, they're falling asleep, they're bored, you know, whatever. And so it's not entirely that you're preparing the magic thing to teach freshmen. or the, This is actually a continuous feedback loop. Mostly, the lessons are ignore jargon. Jargon doesn't even help in technical presentations. It sometimes is useful if you've got a set of people who all share a common language and you're sure they share that common language, use it. But people far too often assume that they can rely on jargon to carry meaning. Simplicity. The thing that I've seen most is the smartest people in the world and the best communicators distill things down to their essence. I watched Nobel laureate physicist talk to the Dalai Lama in northern India during a science week the Dalai Lama had organized where this Nobel laureate Steve Chu and I and a few others came. And you could have expected that he'd be trying to impress the Dalai Lama with all sorts of fancy physical thing. He started by putting up a slide and he says, Your Holiness, this is a technical thing I'm going to use in my discussion. This is a rubber ducky. Next slide. This is two rubber duckies. The Dalai Lama is really smart. Steve Chu is really smart. 
But he wanted to talk about discreteness in certain ways, and he was not above using rubber duckies to do it, and it makes an impact. When you go to a scientific meeting, and you hear talk after talk, they're so often monotone. People don't modulate their voice. They don't say things that are memorable. They're afraid to do that. They think the right way to communicate is to blandly describe the data, to go on and on about, we did this, we did this, we hypothesized that, et cetera, et cetera, as if it's in a general monotone and you really lose the reader because of the listener because it's really tough to follow and you stop, modulate, grab people's attention, sound different than the next person, sound passionate about things because you're trying to form a memory. There's this crazy notion in science that you hear, the data should speak for themselves. The data are mute. They don't speak for themselves. You speak for the data. Science is a human activity. It's about one human convincing another human that we've got a good explanation for the world. If, if you can't convince somebody, both in your writing and in your speaking, that what you found makes sense, you've lost. The data can be as good as you want, but the job of a scientist is not done until they've managed to make a human connection and convince somebody. You know, you might think, oh, it's like a machine-readable mathematical proof. There are machine-readable mathematical proofs. There are proof-writing proof systems and proof-reading systems, but they're not the interesting thing about mathematics or the interesting thing about science. You know, those, you could have a machine produce a proof and another machine check the proof and the two machines would be happy, I suppose, or whatever machines are. But no, that's just not what science is. Science is one human being satisfied that someone else has a good explanation for something. And also, by the way, that the thing is interesting enough to care. If it's not interesting enough to care about, Life is short, lives are busy, why pay attention? The job of a scientist is to communicate why something matters and what you've discovered about it. And you're a teacher. You're a teacher whether you're talking to your professional colleagues. You may think those professional colleagues are all up on every detail of the literature. Trust me, they're not. You, you may think you have to assume everything. No, they've, they've really not followed all the literature you feel. Explain it. Nobody ever minds if you slow down and make an explanation and you give a solid foundation. If the train is leaving the station, let it leave slowly so that people can hop on board along the way. If the train leaves at super speed when you start a talk, people, they just miss the train. Also, when you're trying to explain something, have the train stop at intermediate stations, slow down so people can digest, so people can get back on. It's connecting, it's teaching. So I don't think it's very different. I serve as the co-chair of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology for President Obama. So I have occasion to have to go explain things to President Obama. He is super smart. This is one of the smartest people I've ever met. But we get along well because I can take complicated things and explain them simply without in any way talking down or oversimplifying. In fact, distilling the essence of something is not oversimplification. It's getting to the heart of the matter. 
Hey, you have a lot of sound. You'll do something with it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, I actually have a couple questions coming out of that. I mean, first, why do you think that that... Uh, um, I think of the way that students kind of come in and interact with communication or, or anything, because I taught high school. It's the mm -hmm. same way. We have mental models that we're coming into and logical patterns. Yeah. Why are they making these logical fallacies about that you kind of just talk to? Like, they're not slowing down. They're not doing these things. Is it like that they they think science is one thing? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things. Number one, teaching is an art. You perfect it. If we think you can just magically be a good teacher without studying it and practicing it, uh, we're kidding ourselves. So the idea that you can just come in and teach and you will have these concepts of a mental model of what's in somebody else's mind that you're constantly updating and you're updating it based on the questions they're asking, the language they're using. You learn how to do that. You learn how to observe. I think one of the problems with students is they're still so busy in their own mind. They're grabbing onto the bits of science. They don't feel secure about those bits of science. When they prepare a talk, they're focusing on the next sentence and the next slide and the next thing, and they may not have any headspace to be focusing on their listener. So it's a mentally taxing thing to both know what your next point and your next slide are going to be and to be reading the faces of your audience and anticipating where they might get confused or something like that. It's work. It's practice. Do it. The best way to learn how to go give a talk at a scientific meeting is try to give a talk to a layperson. The best way to learn how to teach is teach freshmen. Freshmen, they're not going to cut you any slack about this. If they don't understand, they'll tell you they don't understand. You know, the worst thing sometimes is to go give a talk to your lab mate. You should do it. It's a good thing to give a talk to your lab mate, but your lab mate is least likely to say, I'm confused by that. What are you talking about? So you need people who are going to be able to look at your slides and say, I'm confused. Why are all those words there and all those numbers there and all those things? And how do you expect me to make sense of this slide with seven moving parts going on? Why isn't there a title at the top that says in the simplest possible terms what the point is? Why aren't the axes labeled in some way where I could read them without a microscope? These are the sorts of very simple things that... A lay listener, and then, of course, an expert listener who's learned how to teach can do. I try to do this in my own lab with my own students. But there's an art to it. If you said, you know, I'm going to become a sculptor overnight, you wouldn't believe somebody could do that. If, if you're going to say, you know, I'm going to become an airplane pilot overnight. No, becoming a teacher, becoming a communicator, whether it's verbally in a class teaching or written text in a scientific journal or in some other form, it is an art that you hone again and again, and you edit, and you learn, and you pay attention, and you look at masters. It is something where you apprentice yourself to great people who do it, just like you apprentice yourself as a scientist to your advisor. Go find the best communicators and apprentice yourself to them. Listen to what they do and pay attention and care. So often in science, we train people to do science, without training them to do the other jobs that come along with being a scientist. Those jobs are be a communicator. Those jobs are be an educator. Those jobs are be a lab manager, too. And you can't succeed in science without learning those other skills, and you can't succeed unless you respect those other skills. If you think the only skill that matters is being a great scientist, 
will quickly find that your lab falls apart or nobody hears what you're saying. Respect all the skills of the job. I'm guessing there was a time early, I mean, assuming, but uh, there was a time earlier in your career where you learned what you needed to work on. Yep. And I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about that. So I was really lucky. I was a high school student in New York City, and I went to Stuyvesant High School, one of the specialized math science schools, and I joined the math team. I loved the math team. I came an hour early on the subway and got in at 8 o'clock to Stuyvesant for the one-hour math team. And in my senior year, I was the captain of the math team. The job of the captain of the math team was to run that one hour. So I actually taught every day for a year my senior year in high school. When I went to college, I taught at a National Science Foundation summer program in mathematics that I had taken as a student in between my junior and senior years of high school. It's a fabulous NSF-funded course that was run at Hampshire College over the summer. And as a teacher there, I taught six hours a day, six days a week, for six weeks that summer. You couldn't prepare lesson plans for all that. You had to be able to wing it. So I did that for three summers. So I got each year more than 200 hours of teaching experience over the course of each of those three summers. It is incredibly valuable to have all that practice. What I think is too bad often is students don't get that experience. So by the time I actually came to teach, I had made lots of mistakes. I had learned lots of things. You know, there's the uh, famous observation that's quoted by um, uh, oh goodness, um, popular science writer. Uh, I'm just blocking on his name right now. Anyway, well, we won't go there. Anyway, <laughs> um, mastery. It, it is said that mastery True mastery takes 10,000 hours. I think that's right. If you think you're going to get it overnight, forget it. If you want to be a master, start practicing. You know, this is the only way to get it. I was really lucky early in my career. That is, as a high school student, and as a college student, I got the chance to teach. It has stood me in such good stead. And as a college student, I took a fabulous writing course from the great nonfiction writer John McPhee. And my main extracurricular activity in college was I wrote for the college newspaper, the Daily Princetonian at Princeton. I did daily journalism. The experience of a lot of teaching and a lot of writing has been invaluable for me as a scientist. Because it means when I sit down to write a paper, I have a lot of words under my belt. I have a lot of experience writing for different audiences. It helps. So you might think that you should devote every waking hour to the lab bench. No, you know, devote 80% of the hours to the lab bench. Devote 20% of the hours to collecting these experiences with connecting. Yeah, it sounds like you were uh, putting together time towards connecting with people alongside your time researching. Uh, the field that you were like really studying. Yeah. Um, and I think, I wonder if, 
I wonder if, well, because I'm thinking about the a couple of different things. One of the things I'm thinking about is like not every grad student's going to run like a giant lab, right? Some of them. Of course not. Of course not, right? There's not enough because <laughs> then there would have to be people to work in the labs. Um, so, but I, I'm even wondering on a minimum level, it sounds like you did the maximum level of, of, like, com- of communications, uh, professional development for yourself that you could do in, in exposing yourself to teaching um, and, and talking and managing people. Um, but what, what would you think at the very minimum there should be? Like, uh, like you said, 80, 20, is that, is that what you think is yeah, the minimum? Yeah. I, I, I think since science doesn't speak for itself, your job as a scientist is to speak for the science. You ought to devote 20% of your time to learning how to do that job. Well, I think that's, that's enough of a, of a commitment that you'll learn a lot. I think if you were to try to do this with 2% of your time, you're not going to learn it. I think if you were to take 50% of your time on that, you earn enough time at the bench. But the difference between eight, what you can get done with 80% of the time and, 20, and 100% of the time at the bench is small. In fact, the discipline that you should be learning other things in addition to the specific narrow scientific area is very healthy. You should master these other things. You may not run a large lab. You may not, you know... Be the master teacher. But whatever you do, whatever career you're in, however you use your science and your engineering, you will benefit from the ability to communicate verbally and to communicate in writing. It will, just in the most selfish sense, advance your own career. It will, in a much less selfish sense, help your listener a tremendous amount. Yeah, I mean, you just mentioned, and you also mentioned a, a diversity of things that you did do, and I'm wondering uh, which one of those, when you think back to, to one of them that was pivotal, because uh, I'm thinking about, like, what, if you only have 20% of your time economically, would you, you went right for the teaching bit. Is that what you, you'd say, like, maybe is one of the more important experiences well, a grad student could, could force themselves into, is, is teaching yeah, but real teacher. You know what I mean? Really engaging with another human being and, and teaching with them, not teaching at them. Some teaching is you talk and you hope. You hope something got through. But as with any experiment, if you just set up the experiment and do it, then you don't measure the result, you haven't learned much. Same is true for communication. If you sit there and you communicate at someone, and you have no way to measure the result, well, you're not going to get any better at it. Just like your science won't get any better without actually assaying the result at the end. Get yourself into situations where you can communicate and find out if the message coming through, if anybody's getting excited by it, if anybody's understanding it, see what questions you get. The questions will tell you a lot. You may, you may try to communicate at somebody and then get a whole set of questions and you realize, oh my God, they have no clue what I'm talking about. I accomplished nothing. And instead of getting frustrated, you should get technical. You should say, what failed about that experiment? What variable needs to change? Do you... I could have, have to go a couple, in a couple of minutes. minutes. Um, last question. Good. Is there anything, uh, and, and before you go, I want you to definitely state your name and what you do here. So I'm, that clip, so. I'm Eric Lander. I'm the director of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. And I'm a geneticist and a mathematician, and I love what I do. Okay. Last question. Is there anything you're currently struggling to communicate with? 
like like an idea that you're i mean you don't have to be anything but i'm wondering if like i am constantly struggling how to communicate um so i i'm constantly struggling with how to communicate ideas right now i'm working on a paper and i'm working on a memo for the white house and in both of them i have drafts and i hate them and i'm going back and i'm editing them and i'm simplifying them every single time i write I'm struggling. Writing is a struggle. I hate writing. I love having written. But I hate writing because it's so much work and most of what comes out isn't good enough. And if you want to succeed, get something down, realize why it's not good, delete it, edit it, keep going. You know, the things I'm proud of have gone through 40 drafts. Uh, that's what writing is. So we if you ask, am I struggling with communicating? Every minute of every day when I'm teaching, I'm constantly struggling with, am I getting this thing across? When I, when I try to write a scientific paper, I'm struggling with the terrible balance between a coherent narrative and needing to dive deep into certain facts along the way. How do you keep the narrative thread while getting the details in there? That's a struggle. When I'm writing something for the White House, how do we get this to this simple, clear idea that will drive policy and not get just lost in a, in a whole set of facts? Communication is a struggle, but it's worth it. Uh, if you can actually get an idea from your head into another head, wow, that's one of the most powerful viral forces there are. Okay. That was awesome. This podcast was written and produced by Adam Greenfield. The executive producer of this podcast is Patrick Yurick. The Great Communicators Podcast. The Great Communicators Podcast, GradComics Live, GradComics The Game, and the Technically Speaking Comic Book Series are part of a professional development initiative called GradX. GradX is, GradX made, is made possible by the Office of Graduate Education at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. To find out more about find Grad out X. more about GradX, as well as get access to other episodes of the Great Communicators podcast, go to gradx.mit.edu. For more information, for more information and links on the music used in this episode, please see the show notes.